Welcome to Intuitive Wellness, a podcast where I, Samara, and my partner, Lali, talk about relating to our bodies, identities, and oppressive systems, and share the tools that are working for us and our guests. This show is for witchy, introspective activists who struggle with trying to heal all the shit in their lives and in the world. If you believe that healing yourself is activism, you're in the right place. Today we have the honor of interviewing Rachel Ann Jolie, who is an educator, writer, and media maker. She is the author of the memoir, Rust Belt Femme, and the editor of The Prison Arcana Tarozine, written by her incarcerated pen pal, C.L. Young. Her other work has appeared in Teen Vogue, Bitch Magazine, In These Times, numerous academic journals, and more. She writes about queer and working class identity, healing justice, pop culture, and many things in between. Rachel was the co-host and co-producer of the Feminist Killjoys PhD podcast from 2016 to 2019. She resides in Cleveland, Ohio with her partner and three perfect cats. You can find her at www.rachelandjolie.com and on Instagram at rebelgirlrachel. And we'll put those links below. I am so excited to be talking to Rachel. Is it Rachel Jolly or Jolie? Jolie. Jolie. Okay. Yes. So excited. Everyone mispronounces both of our names. So <laughs> we always make sure to get that cleared up right Appreciated. away. Before saying the wrong thing. Um, but so excited to be talking to Rachel Jolie. Your work has inspired me so much just in the little bit of time since I've been put onto you. I've checked out some of your articles and I, I really love your Instagram content. So I cannot mm. wait to get into this conversation today. Thanks so and much. And to kick us off, just feel free to let the people know anything you would like them to know about you and, and how you like to think about yourself, what you're excited about, whatever whatever feels good. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, thank you so much. I similarly am you know, newer to have discovered both of you, but already very much enjoying the sense and vibes that I'm getting from you both from, from what I've followed and, and learned so far. Um, and super happy to be here. So I am, I'm a writer, an educator, um, occasional media maker. Uh, I had a podcast for a long time, Feminist Killjoy's PhD, which is still archived so people can still find that, but um, we ended a couple years ago. Um, and I was, uh, the sort of short bio uh, of my sort of adult life is that I was in academia for a long time and a college professor and academia doesn't have um, great job security these days. There's not a lot of long-term full-time positions anymore. So um, it was a really sort of crushing part of my life, trying like kind of getting out of this thing that I had devoted so much of my life to. Um, but since I've sort of moved away from academia, it's given me space to actually do the kind of writing that I wanna do, which is um, more creative nonfiction and mm -hmm. focus um, focus more on writing that's that's more accessible um, partially in how it's written, but more especially that a lot of academic writing is like behind paywalls and stuff. So now I don't, you know, I can make writing available more widely. Um, so yeah, so I write now, I still teach college classes, but not as like a full-time thing. Um, and the other big important thing about me, I suppose, is that uh, I'm a witch and spirituality and magic um, are a really important part of my life, important part of my life. Um, and it intersects and plays a big role in my sort of political life, which is inextricable from just what my life is. Um, because for, uh, since I've been 16, 17, I've been involved in activist and organizing work. Um, 
I grew up uh, working poor, working class. Um, so I have uh, long commitments personally to economic, economic justice movements. Um, I got politicized by the anti-war movement and uh, have more recently done, I do a lot of work with, with prison abolition movements. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's like what I do, what I care about, um, how I show up. And I'm speaking to you from Ohio, originally Erie and, Miss, and currently uh, Mrs. Alga Lamb. Thank you so much for that introduction. Yeah. Um, we have, oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about this journey that you're saying um, you were in academia, but you wanted to sort of have more of the creative nonfiction work that was behind the paywall. Um, how did you decide to make that transition? Partly it was forced on me. I mean, I, I, mm. I was in a position that was year, like on a year to year contract and the contract just mm. ran up and they couldn't mm. renew it again. Um, and I had applied to a number of tenure track positions and didn't land didn't land any except for one that I had to turn down for a different reason. Um, so I didn't have a job. <laughs> so I, um, it was really, it was dark for, for a few probably months. I was in a pretty dark place about that. Um, but I, I was also teaching yoga on the side and uh, always writing. I mean, writing is something I've just, I don't, I don't, I can't remember a period of my life more than like two weeks that I haven't been writing something. Um, so that was happening. And I was like, well, I guess I can just start trying to pitch this to places that aren't academic journals. And um, so that, that happened more uh, at first because of necessity, but um, it's been really exciting for me to remember that as a kid, I really wanted to be a writer. And that at a certain point, I realized or I decided that um, that's like that's not something like working class kids can do, like only like privileged rich kids can can do what they love, um, you know, because you have to have like a safety net and it's, you know, a trust fund in order to do something that you probably won't get paid for for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and I really had to change that narrative around like being deserving of of being a writer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we both definitely resonate with that. Definitely. I, we both, I mean, for me, I grew up, I, I did actually want to be a writer. There was a, a really intense period of time in high school where I like effectively wrote a book and then never did anything with it. But I was mm -hmm. like, so into writing and then had a similar situation where my parents were like, only rich people can do that. Like we cannot, there's nothing we can do to guarantee that you will be right. safe doing that. And then that was kind of the end of that. And now with being a healer and being a coach, it did take a lot of, and it's still a very ongoing, like it's not over um, an ongoing process of reminding myself that I do get to have a life that I love and be financially taken care of. And mm -hmm. there's nothing about like my past that would make that impossible for me. Totally. So, totally. Yeah. yeah. Just hearing you say that is such a, it's, it's a nice confirmation to me also. Yeah. And I'm sure to many of the people listening. Good. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's actual work to like unlearn or unlearn those stories though. Um, and like the way we embody those messages too, for sure. So I know the work you do is, speaking exactly to some of those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. yes. Um, and so you describe yourself as a storyteller for change. 
And I love that. And I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. How did you decide that that was how you were going to describe yourself? And, and what does being a storyteller for change mean to you? Yeah, um, I, I think that the sort of notion of it, I want to pay homage and give credit to um, Tony Kidd Bambara, who's a writer and culture worker, um, Black feminist, really inspirational figure. Um, and she has this quote that the role of the, I'm gonna mess it up. So y'all should go look it up so you get the right words at some point. But so it's something like the role of the culture worker who, who come from a group of oppressed people is to make the revolution irresistible. Mm -hmm. And isn't that lovely? Um, and so hearing those words, I I'm gonna back up one second. So there was a lot of my sort of activist life um, where I was trying to sort of force myself into sort of the role of like an organizer, like uh, whether it was a union organizer or being on the front lines of um, different protest movements and things like that, which I did a lot of and I really loved and um, valued. But it, it was very clear to me that that wasn't necessarily like my skill set. And, and I had a passion for justice and liberation, but I didn't quite have a passion for like the sort of hard hours of that organizing takes when people are sort of on the front lines of that. And so taking that into consideration and realizing that my passion and my, I think, skill set and talent lies much more in writing and, and, and storytelling in a variety of, of ways. Um, to me, I think that really speaks to how social justice work is gonna flourish better if we're all doing what, what we're actually wanting to be doing and meant to be doing and love to be doing. Um, and so instead of trying to push myself into a box that wasn't about storytelling and writing, um, I sort of gave myself permission to do that because I knew that it would actually be better for, for creating change. Mm -hmm. Um, which is also a really hard lesson and goes back to the sort of money stories that we were talking about before too. It, it, it's hard to um, step away from those sort of blueprints that, that I think act, a lot of activists are given um, about how to create change. And uh, I'm sure you both are familiar with Adrienne Marie Brown. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, hello. Yeah, it's like a silly question to ask people these days. But, um, you know, she she talks a lot about this in terms of in pleasure activism and, and emergent strategy as well, that um, uh, that that, you know, that we need that we need to make revolution as pleasurable as possible, as irresistible as possible, similar to Tony K. Bambara. Um, and so, yeah, so being a storyteller for change, I think, speaks to that for me, because it's like, that's where my, that's where I come most alive. And so I know that will best influence social change work. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how, um, I'm not sure if, if you see it this way, but I feel like as I'm learning about your prison abolition work and how you um, focus on storytelling for change, um, and you created this, uh, the Prison Arcana Tarot Zine, it kind of feels like you're literally, this is what you're creating out of this, like desire to create change using what feels good to you, the skills that you have. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that project? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I think I think that's a great connection. Um, because I think in many ways, like telling my story feels like part of that work, but it's also finding ways to use my skill set to help other people tell their stories. Um, and in the prison archon of Terezine, uh, it's not my story. It's it's the the reflections and writings of um, my at this point dear friend, somebody I think of as family, um, but started out as uh, a pen pal that I didn't know that I got connected with through an organization called Black and Pink, which um, supports LGBTQ and HIV positive uh, incarcerated people. Um, and one of the big things they do is a pen pal program where there are people um, people on the inside who request pen pals and then people on the outside can sort of look at people's interests and stuff and um, find somebody they wanna write to. So I've been writing to, he goes, he goes by crazy boy to his, to his friends, but on the, on the zine, he goes by CL Young. And uh, he, one of his interests when I first met him many years ago now at this point uh, was he wrote, he wrote something like activism, magic, maybe, or maybe a cult um, mm. and then some other things. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm there. Like, this is my dude. <laughs> um, so what we ended up do so we wrote for a long time got to know each other and sort of the thing i was noticing in the letters and and everybody's experience with having an incarcerated pen pal will will be different um but for for crazy boy he he's black and queer and practices um a non-christian religion and faces prison as a violent place hands down but he he experiences um immense, immense trauma and, and violence in the prison, again, as, as, every, as everybody does. Um, but I would often get letters that were either about the incredible violence he was experiencing, or sometimes like on good weeks, he was just like deeply bored. Like there's just so little sometimes for, for folks inside to do. And so because we talked about magic and, you know, I had my own tarot practice at that point, um, we talked about tarot and he really wanted to be able to do tarot, but um, prison mail rooms are awful in terms of they, they have, supposedly they have a set of rules of what's allowed in and out, but people in mail rooms often just like decide on a whim if they're going to let something in or not let something in. And they're really harsh rules to begin with. And so a tarot deck, at least at that time at the prison he was in at that time was not allowed inside. Mm. So, yeah. So I started sending him photocopied images of the, of the major arcana images. Wow. And, uh, you know, he, he knew about tarot. He knew he had a general sense of them, but he also likes to write. And so I said, you know, just something to occupy your time. Would you want to do like your own interpretations of the major arcana sort of telling, you know, through your lens and through your experiences and stories? And so that's what we started doing, just mailing back and forth images of, of the cards and then his writings about them. And then I turned them into the, the, little, the little booklet, um, little DIY zine um, through a fellowship I got uh, at the Future in Minneapolis, which is like a magical space store and artist space. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's sort of the background to it. And I think it's been really powerful and beautiful to sometimes reach people, I think in like kind of witchier spaces that maybe wouldn't necessarily, 
you know, you don't see a ton of tarot decks that are centering queer, black incarcerated experiences. <laughs> so it felt, it felt powerful to bring his voice into that space. Um, and conversely, there's also like a lot of prison abolitionists or just sort of general lefty activists who would never think about picking up a tarot deck. And some of those folks like read it too. So I got like sort of people got to sort of dabble in things they wouldn't necessarily be interested in, which I thought was, was pretty great. Um, and, and, you know, and his, his experiences got to be validated and heard and, um, you know, unfortunately it doesn't change the fact that he's still incarcerated and still struggles a lot, but it was literally material change because when we, we sell the zines and then he and the, there's beautiful images in the zine as well from another incarcerated artist and we split the into all the every single dime goes to um both jamie and crazy boy so he does have like he actually gets to be treated like a human being who's getting compensated for his labor um which is often not the case in prison at all so um yeah that beer that kind of went all over the place but that that's that's a, a bit more about the project wow thank you so much i feel like i'm lighting up hearing about this story this is so amazing I feel like this is one of those projects that like, for me at least, I would think about doing something like this and then my head would tell me all the reasons why like it was unrealistic or it was not like, you know, nothing was ever going to come from it or I would just like gaslight myself and then it would never happen. And so hearing about all of the commitment from all three of you that you all put into this and and really believed in it and allowed it to come to life and to be in the world is so beautiful and so inspiring for me honestly as like Aww. as an individual and I'm sure like everyone listening is getting inspired too so thank you Aww. for sharing and I love I love the level of detail I love going on tangents and so like okay if you ever <laughs> want to go on about anything please, all right please do Thanks. so um is the zine digital or is it only physical? Yeah, it is also it's digital and physical. And that's actually a good opportunity for me to say there were actually four of us involved. Um, so the artist, Jamie Diaz, um, I got connected with her through my dear friend, Gabriel, who mm. is Jamie's pen pal. So and Gabriel made the digital version. So I made the print version. Mm. Gabriel made the digital version. So folks can download it um, and I can send you links to this. You can download it on the Futures mm -hmm. website um, or a place called ABO Comics um, and just get the digital the digital version. Um, or there are, there are currently no more print copies but I'm going to make more eventually. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. been, it's been hard with the pandemic. Like I ran out right when COVID started and I was like, I'm not gonna stand in a Staples and copy things right. for for yeah, two hours and now things are you know I'm like okay I can like double up my masks and you know go go on in but um it's just been going slow going so that's all to say I'll give you links people can be in touch <laughs> and get and get one of the versions okay yeah because I actually right now I'm I'm running a a cohort for my tarot for justice program mm -hmm. and we are looking at reading the tarot through, okay, what did Lindsay say? Through a socially aware lens, taking mm. a socially aware approach to the tarot. So I always say like tarot for justice, meaning like looking at the, blending your, 
your interest in social justice with your interest in the tarot and coming up with a tarot practice that kind of like marries both. Yeah. But one of our alumni who actually now is creating her own deck was like, this is more than, you know, just social justice and the tarot together. It's like becoming socially aware and allowing your social awareness to include your tarot awareness. Yeah. And I would love, love, love to share this with my students. I'm always sending them like anything related to like the different books that I'm reading and just all these things. So I think they would really dig this. Yeah. Send me the link. Absolutely. I would love that. And uh, yeah, I mean, we can, I would, yeah, I would love to send you a link. Yes, please. That sounds, that sounds amazing. And is it Lindsay Mack? Is that who you were saying? Does Lindsay, what did Lindsay say or somebody else? Oh no, different. Okay. Different Lindsay. Okay. (laughs) I went to Lindsay Lindsay Mack. We love. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, did you do Lindsay's tarot school too? Um, That's what I was asking. Anyway. um, Cool. Yeah. That course sounds incredible. And yeah, I would absolutely love, love to share that for that. Okay. Amazing. Yay. Yeah. Okay. I just had to jump in and say that. I don't know Yay. if you had something to add, but I was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I also am hearing, and I'm like, obviously keeping in mind everything that we plan to talk about, but I also feel like these things just go in directions. Um, and I'm hearing one of the things that I love to harp on with people, which is the myth of like the godless left, right? The myth that mm. if you are a lefty <laughs> that you are secular and that, you know, all of the things that are non-secular are in competition with the values of justice and liberation. And so right. I would love to hear your thoughts on this, this misconception and like more about how you're, you're using your work to kind of come up against that misconception. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I'm hopeful that that's changing a lot. Um, I, I think I know for sure. I'm definitely old. I'm older than like every, I feel like I'm older than everybody these days, but I just had a birthday and so I'm processing that a little, but I, yeah, I think I'm a decent amount older than you both. Mm-hmm. And I feel like my generation, I don't know. I think there's been a positive shift. So I'll start there. I think it's getting better, but certainly when I was being politicized, there was, yeah, there was just really, um, there were like, sort of main like kind of Christian social justice types that were sort of service oriented and 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 that kind of just sort of more traditional kind of charity models. And then there were also some more like sort of radical Christian folks that have, have existed for a long time. Um, but there was a lot of commitment to like atheism and agnosticism and just sort of secular, um, just secularness in the service of like, the, you know, suffering is on earth. We don't need to think about anything else. Like we need to commit to fixing things here now in the immediate, et cetera. Um, I could also go on a long tangent about like Marx's theory is like kind of inherently anti-metaphysical. So I won't get into that tangent, but there's a lot of Marxists who are on principle, um, not super spiritual because it kind of contradicts Marx's theory. That's not everybody though. Um, the shift that I think is happening is partly, I mean, a lot of, I credit Adrian Marie Brown and many other black feminists for sort of centering um, lost and ignored um, healing and uh, ritual that have always been part of um, sur- movements for survival um, and have always been part of survival period. And I think that the fact that 
our culture has, thank goodness, shifted enough to allow those voices to be louder and more understood and more heard because um, they've always been there. They're just finally getting more attention. I think that's a big part of it. So thank you always. Thank you, Black feminist women leaders who are saying things that we should have been listening to for a lot longer, um, as well as Indigenous leaders that have been saying these kinds of things, I mean, since before colonization, um, that, that spirituality, whether you think about it as the moon or as the plants or anything else, that um, the our connection to something bigger, quote unquote, um, really is going to be what propels us to sort of keep keep moving and it's going to center us in, in let's take environmentalism, for example, the more spiritual I became and the more my practices started incorporating, connecting to local plant life, for example, the better environmentalist I became, you know, the more, the more beholden to the land that I felt when I had began to develop a more a deeper spiritual relationship to it. So that was also kind of twisty and tangenty, but I think, yeah, like just in the beginning, it's like the voices that, that knew this stuff were being ignored because of white supremacy and colonialism. And then now, and I think now, thankfully, those same voices are getting heard a little more and um, more of the left is waking up to the fact that um, this, is a, this is not a distraction from the work, but this, is, this literally is the work that, and it's the only way we'll be able to be in the quote work and survive it. What do you both think? Do you have thoughts on this? Um, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think that so much of the reason why, at least like when I first was introduced to activism, um, I completely separated it from spirituality because I, like the spirituality that I had learned was like very Catholic, Mexican, like you have to follow these rules. Mm -hmm. And my opening up into activism was becoming queer and like separating from these like gender binary norms that I was taught. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm separating from God. I don't need God to be myself. That's how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and I think through my trans journey, I'm getting to a point where like part of understanding who I am outside of these white supremacist colonial ideas about identity is I am like in connection with the world, with God, with universe, however I want to see it. Um, and like at my most natural, like bare naked self is beyond gender, is beyond this body. Um, yeah, and so I'm, I'm resonating a lot with what you're saying. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think what both of you said resonates with me for different reasons because I grew up in black church and I was going to black church every single week for most of my life. And there was a sense of service orientation, but it, it to me stemmed always from evangelism. At least mm -hmm. what I saw was like, we are doing this because we are spreading Jesus out mm -hmm. to people. And, you know, even like building of churches in other places that was considered to be like a service to the world was to go and, and build a church or to go and, you know, we would send children whose parents were incarcerated, like notes about Jesus. And that would be right. like 
the service, it would always be connected to evangelism. I know that not everyone's experience is like that, but that's the lens that I had as a kid watching and being a part of like service and, and like work for social change, but really like the social change you wanted was that more people were converting to Christianity. Yeah. And similar to Lali, as I was really awakening, not only to queerness, but to my sense of a holistic understanding of blackness and really coming to terms with the ways in which slavery is responsible for the existence of the black church at all mm. and having to grapple with all of the the ways in which I understood what it meant to be of service through a very colonial and white supremacist lens yeah. and untangling that I think has been the biggest work for me of learning how to have a spiritual practice and a spiritual life that didn't then require me to go. I, I think one of the things that I struggled with was feeling like I didn't want to be required to push how I felt about the world onto other people mm-hmm. because that was all evangelism, right? And I was like, right. I am not going to now start this other thing where I'm using my spiritual practice as a vehicle for telling other people how to think and telling other people what to believe. Right. And so with the different journeys I've been on and now with like the creation of my course and all these things, it has really just been an unfolding of helping people use spirituality as a vehicle for awakening to what they truly believe the world should look like. And then asking themselves and asking their, their spirits what they can do to start exacting their own version of what the world could be. And that's how I've made peace with all these things. But I think for me, the, the relationship between, you know, God's source spirit and what it means to advocate for social change has always been rocky for that for, because of those childhood things, you know, totally, totally. Yeah. That's super, that's super interesting. I appreciate you both both sharing those perspectives. Yeah. And thanks for asking us. (laughs) Yeah. Love being roped in. Okay. And so we talked a little bit, this is such funny, so funny how spirit like segues things because the next thing that we had planned to talk about was anti-racist work. And we've already started to talk about white supremacy and the ways in which white supremacist thinking can can toxify, toxify, is that a word? Can be toxic um, <laughs> to, our, to our, our healing journeys. And so I'm wondering how you see this whole relationship between healing work and an embodiment of that healing journey with anti-racist work? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, my journey as an attempting to always be in process of being an anti-racist accomplice slash ally white person, um, really like a, just like my sort of activist journey that I described, it began with very much a commitment to that we need to dismantle white supremacy on the structural level. Like we need to um, eradicate, you know, the sort of legacies of systemic racism that exists within housing discrimination, employment discrimination, et cetera. Also dismantle capitalism because capitalism is inherently racist in the way it shows up in, you know, colonized and um, spaces. And so it was very structure, 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 which I still fully believe all of that 
stuff has to go. Um, and interpersonally, I was like, okay, I'm just going to try to be like a quote, good white person and like, call it, call it a, like, I'm just going to do my best and like cross my fingers, but I'll keep like working on the structural level. Cause that like feels that it was almost safer. Cause I was like, okay, I can't like mess that up as much. There's like a blueprint for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it became clear again, not, not because of any brilliant ideas I had, but because of like learning more from people of color talking about this kind of thing stuff and me learning more and listening more. Um, it became clear that I couldn't just like try to like figure it out on my own and like, just like hope for the best, um, that I had to do more work to sort of dismantle the way that racism has been internalized and, and literally embodied in me as a white person. Um, so one book that I'll mention that has really, really transformed my relationship to my own sort of healing, healing my own internalized racism is a book called My Grandmother's Hands. Have you all read Resma Menakim's book? Hi, yeah, I, I highly rec I highly recommend it. It's um I have some like couple critiques of it, but his main message I think is really really powerful, and it's I'll try to I'll try to run through it kind of quickly. But it's his main point is that obviously racism harms us all, including white people, um, because if we think about racism the way we think about other sorts of trauma and trauma responses in our body. Um, Obviously, people of color are going to experience racism on a bodily level in a traumatic way because it's like literal violence onto black and brown bodies. Um, white folks, one, Resma's point is many white folks also have generational trauma that isn't racist. Um, on a, it's not racism towards white people, that's not a thing. But there is generational trauma of, for example, um, like indigenous people in Ireland being colonized, for example, mm-hmm. I have Irish blood. And so I have generational trauma that's related also to um, occupation of land and famine and these things that white people are also gonna have sort of generational trauma to, to, to cope with. And then in contemporary times, white folks have the trauma of like the panic that we're taught to feel in spaces with black and brown bodies where you know we're taught to either be afraid or like quote good white liberals or whatever good good quote good white people are taught to panic because we're afraid we're gonna fuck up am i allowed to swear we're gonna we're gonna mess up (laughs) okay so so there's like panic and trauma happening in our bodies all around race kind of all the time and so in the same way that something like polyvagal theory and trauma talks about like regulating your nervous system so that if you're triggered from a smell that reminds you of a traumatic experience, you know, you find ways to sort of regulate, um, that we also have to practice that same thing with racism, because if there's just a bunch of like anxious and or scared white people walking around and a bunch of traumatized black and brown bodies that aren't people, people have mixed feelings about use of bodies. I'm from the academy, we always say bodies. Um, Walking around with those trauma responses, then these, whether it's, you know, actual physical violence that's happening or um, just nervous systems that are less good at healing ourselves, right? Our our immune systems will be more down. We know that um, like communities of color and, 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 and communities that are living in poverty, like the experience of 
those systemic issues happening on a bodily level, like we see that physically in people and how, how sick people are and how, um, how stress just impacts folks differently if, if they don't have that space for, for stress regulation, basically. So that was kind of a messy answer, but does that make sense? So, so to sort of conclude that, um, I think the body is so important um, in anti-racist work. And I think embodied healing is important for people of all races. Um, and it also really relates to prison abolition and transformative justice, which I can keep going on about, but I'll, but I'll pause. <laughs> um, and yeah, see what, what do y'all think about that theory? I guess I'm thinking a lot about, um, we have talked before on the podcast about breath work and how regulating your nervous system with breath work um, is also important for like giving yourself agency in doing anti-racist work and in mm -hmm. doing your own healing, how those things are intertwined in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I, I just see that connection. Totally. Yeah. We're both breath work facilitators. So we, <laughs> we are all into the embodied healing and I also think for me the the sense of embodied healing also becomes so action oriented in a way that a lot of other healing practices might not be mm. and I've noticed with myself when I'm doing like a breathwork practice or something that requires me to like be in my body while I'm doing it I noticed that my capacity to feel safe in situations where my stress response is going up has broadened so much because I know that like, okay, my body is telling me I'm unsafe. I have a whole toolkit of things that I can do to tell my body that it is safe. And then I can carry on with whatever action it is that I'm taking. So I think it's a really crucial thing for anyone who's whose justice work is going to require action, which is everybody, um, <laughs> because you are going to feel, you are going to have a stress response come up when you're totally. doing something that either you haven't done before, or that maybe you saw someone try it and it didn't go well, which again, uh, how much of activism is right. doing yeah. something that's been tried before and, and didn't go well the first right. time or right. whatever your body might tell you about why it's not safe to be doing what you're doing and knowing that you have practices that will remind your body that you're safe is so crucial to continue totally. on. Totally. Yeah. I love, I love breath work. And do y'all do online facilitations ever? We do. Well, you were doing a lot recently. I do mostly now I'm just focusing on my one-on-one -on -one clients. I have yeah. like a three month one-on-one -on -one container that people go through, cool, but cool. Later in the year, I, I run an anti-capitalism breathwork program called Cash And it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's my favorite thing. And it, it pairs different breathwork techniques with like a bunch of journaling and self-reflection to help people who are looking to heal their relationship to capitalism. Whoa, so that's that'll so be coming up later in the year. Yeah, okay. I will keep my eyes peeled for that for sure. Because yeah, I really... I've had really powerful experiences with breath work and it's also one of the healing modalities I'm, I feel most resistant to. Like I, you could put, I, I was yoga trained in, in a studio that had like heat, like heated like 98 or sometimes over a hundred degrees wow. classes. Uh -huh. So I like really am into like intense stuff, but for okay. some reason I think, yeah, breath work, like 
all my brain can latch onto in preparation of a breathwork session is that part when it gets really, really hard and you want to quit. <laughs> and so I'm like, I don't want to do that again. And then I, and then I actually do it. And I'm like, holy crap, that was just as transformative and amazing as, as I knew it would be eventually. But, um, so I'm, I'm interested in unpacking that in a different, you know, not for now, but I have to unpack my resistance to it, even though I always end up loving it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah I feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. I feel yeah. like we could totally create more content about that because we yeah. don't talk about breath work, even though we do it all the time and we are both facilitators. I feel like we could totally talk about that more. So yeah. thank you for giving us that. that <laughs> totally. Yes. I will be eager to listen to y'all say more on another episode at some point because yeah that's it's a fascinating like it's really fascinating so totally okay well that has wrapped up our conversation and of course the very last thing which is definitely not the least is your book rust belt femme tell us all about the book and how people can find it and how people can connect with you yeah, thanks so much for asking. Um, yeah, so my memoir, Rest Belt Femme, came out March 13th, which was, you know, three days after everything shut down, basically. Yeah. So um, so that was a bummer. My book release party got canceled and my little book tour that I was going to do. So that's a bummer, but it's been people, you know, it's out in the world and people have been enjoying it. And it's been really lovely to connect with people about it. Um, yeah, it's about my life growing up in Ohio. Um where I lived for the first 18 years of my life. I moved away for 17 years and I just moved back. So it's kind of fun to be back. I mean, it's definitely fun to be back. Um, but yeah, so it's about, uh, it's about class, it's about gender, it's about um, music subcultures. I was really into the punk, the punk scene sort of transformed my life and politicized me. So it's sort of about the roots of everything I talked about today. It's sort of like the origin stories of all of that um, and queerness, about queerness. Um, and you can get it at beltpublishing.com. Um, we were just having a conversation before we started recording that it's almost, Belt always puts stuff on sale. So if you wait like two weeks, there'll probably be another sale, but, um, but right now it's not, but beltpublishing.com is the best place to get it. Um, it'll also be out in paperback in the fall, which is exciting. Mm. I'll have a new cover. So that's fun. Um, yeah, so, so that's the book and that's where folks can find it. Did you ask me to say where you can find me too? You can find me yeah. on Instagram. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so you, that's where you can find the book. You can find me, um, on Instagram or Twitter. My handle's annoying and hard to spell. And so is my name, but here, this is where we're at. So it's rebel girl, Rachel, but it's all spelled weird. So it's rebel G R R L. And then Rachel, which has an extra E in it. So it's R-A-E-C-H-E-L. Or you can just look for Rachel and Jolie. Yeah, we'll have the link so people can just click there. Perfect. <laughs> much easier. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming, Rachel. I'm so excited for this episode to come out. And I cannot be more grateful to you for, for your time. Thank you both so much. I really, really enjoyed it. Both of your energies are like super wonderful and it was great great to spend this time with you and i'm just glad to glad to know you both now thank you so much we yeah. appreciate you thank you thank you for listening to this episode of intuitive wellness if you enjoy this content please leave us a review on apple podcast reviews really help us reach more people and as a thank you for a review we will gift you a free intuitive wellness meditation and journaling prompts to help you prioritize intuitive wellness in your life before you hit post on your review, take a screenshot and submit it to the form in our show notes.
we'll get back to you with your goods. Until next time, remember that healing yourself is activism.